Welcome to The Deep Dive. I'm your host, Philip McKenzie. I'm an anthropologist strategist with a focus on culture and humanity-centered design. I'm Brooklyn-born and Brooklyn-made. Every week, I will bring you guests from a wide variety of backgrounds who, despite their different areas of expertise, share traits in common. They aim high, push boundaries, and make things happen. Their experiences drive insights. On today's episode of The Deep Dive, I'm joined by Dr. Wayne Visser. Dr. Visser is a globally recognized academic, poet, and possibilist on the impact of business on nature and society with faculty roles at the University of Cambridge and Antwerp Management School. He is also director of the think tank Kaleidoscope Futures, founder of CSR International, and former director of sustainability services at KPMG and strategy analyst at Capgemini. He has written 43 books, including the Amazon bestseller, Thriving, the breakthrough movement to regenerate nature, society, and the economy. His work has taken him to 78 countries, and he has been listed as a top 100 thought leader in trustworthy business. And it is a pleasure to welcome Dr. Visser to the deep dive. How are you this morning? I'm great. Thanks for having me on. Now, you are a man that is prolific. 43 books. (laughs) And we are only discussing, at least in the in the uh, my preparation for this conversation, one of them, which is thriving. And I want to start by asking, you know, what was the reasoning behind you know writing the book Thriving? It has a very clear and defined thesis. And as someone that has written as many books as you have, what was the spark behind this one? Yeah, thanks. I do enjoy writing. I I normally write to uh, to learn myself or to capture what I'm learning. And I've spent now more than 30 years working in sustainability, mainly working with business. And the reason I wrote Thriving was because of a realization that it's not working, right? We are basically failing despite so much more activity from business on sustainability. So it's a little bit like the metaphor, if you're a doctor and your patient isn't getting well, then you know you need to change your, your prescription and your diagnosis and your methods. And it's the same with this. I think that what we've been doing the last 30 plus years is aiming to do a little less damage, at least as far as the environment goes. And the the scale and speed of businesses' response to the crises we face, the breakdowns in nature, society, and the economy, just haven't kept up with uh, with those crises. And so we tend to be moving backwards on many issues, whether that's climate change, biodiversity loss, inequality, or others. And so we need to change how we view this and how we tackle it. And thriving sets a much more ambitious goal. Uh, and reframes the whole way we approach it. So it's it's interesting that that you highlight that there has been so much activity. There is, you know, I'm someone who's spoken at a, at a ton of conferences around these issues. Sustainable brands is one of them. Globally, there's never a time when I go on LinkedIn or Twitter or other sources and I don't find a paper, a, a new document, new goals. But yet, as you so accurately stated, we don't seem to be moving forward in any way that even offsets the damage that's being done. 
What do you attribute that sort of just resistance to? It, it seems like rank and file people, meaning even those who are not practitioners in the space, are more aware than ever of the challenges, but yet we're stuck. Yeah, and that's a good word for it because it is all about inertia. We're stuck in a system and it's a system that we designed uh, over the last 150 years. It is essentially the industrialist uh, capitalist system. And the way that we've designed it has been very helpful in many ways, has improved uh, quality of life and brought us many of the, uh, the things that we enjoy. But it, it has, from the very start, been a fundamentally unsustainable model because it's been based on a model of continuous growth, economic growth, and, and that's impossible in a finite system. We have finite resources on this planet. As uh, one economist, uh, Gareth Harden, put it, uh, it's like a spaceship economy, right? We, we have to act as if there is no away, there is no continuous supply of resources he actually characterized our current economy as uh, the cowboy economy. It's like we have these endless open plains and we can just carry on, you know, exploiting those resources. It just doesn't add up. So the difference now is we, we're reaching those limits. And in some cases, we've, we've shot past those limits and we're starting to get the negative feedback. In other words, the system is starting to break down. And the reason why we, we haven't made the transition we have to is because it's really hard. I mean, we, we're all dependent on the system. Uh, we, we're beneficiaries of it. There are huge vested interests in keeping the status quo as it is. It is a fossil fuel-based system. And, of course, uh, all the, uh, the lobby power that comes with, that, with those incumbents and so it's natural that uh, we, we try to cling to what we know and what seems to have worked, at least for some of us, for the past generation or more. But it, it is reaching the state where, where uh, the, the evidence of failure is just becoming too hard to ignore. It, it's really interesting because I, I wrestle with this notion of, you know, we can be alarmed without being alarming, meaning we can share information that is it's critical. We can be realistic as to the challenges that we face without being in a state of panic or what I've seen characterized as, you know, climate anxiety and climate dread and, you know, these kind of terms that, you know, I take umbrage with, but I'll, that's, all, that's another story, right? But oftentimes this is I've seen or thought of it as a debate that's framed in terms of being, you know, you're either optimistic about our our chances or you're pessimist or cynical about our chances. And I wonder if that is a fair way to frame challenges that are so significant. Yeah, well, as you know, in the book, I, I, I write about panic and I write about hope. And I use the story from my own life where I nearly drowned off the coast of South Africa. And on reflection, having been caught in a riptide, a current that sort of pulls you out to sea, I realized that what would have killed me and my wife, and we, we both very nearly drowned, was that we panicked. And 
if we manage to be a little bit calmer and more rational and, you know, the trick is to swim diagonally towards the shore, not try to swim directly against the current, we would have fared much better. And I think it is the same with our current challenges that we face in the world because panic gives you exactly the wrong kind of response. It's normally a very ill-conceived response. And so you can be very, very aware of an emergency, but you can still act very rationally and calmly. And it's the same with what we face. Most of the book, Thriving, is actually about the solutions because we have just thousands of innovations going on and scaling, which is the difference between now and 30 years ago, that give us hope. And I make the distinction then between being positive or optimistic and being hopeful because hope is grounded in action. Hope is based on an understanding that things can and usually do always change. No matter how dire the situation might seem, there's always the possibility to influence the system we're part of. And there's the chance that not only can things break down, but things can break through. We can have positive tipping points as well, rapid accelerations of solutions. And so that always uh, gives me hope uh, rather than the idea of optimism, which is really to say that the future will be bright and sunny. And hope is is critical, right? And as you mentioned, it is rooted in in action. And but when you when you look out at at some of these actors, right? Like I, I think about um I, I often say that I'm framing a lot of these conversations in a US domestic perspective because that's where I live, right? So that's the news I get the most, despite being a person who does consume quite a bit of news. <laughs> and so you see there being incredible amount of knowledge and movement in these spaces. And yet you have an administration like, you know, we have the Biden administration, right, who who recently, you know, allowed for a huge exploratory project in Alaska on previously like untapped land for now more drilling. And this is largely derided as a disaster move <laughs> for any sort of, you know, pullback on fossil fuel and, and obviously the effects that it has on climate. And I reference this because, you know, he's supposed to be one of the good guys, right? Like he, he came in on the promise of doing better than the previous guy. And so I reference him to only say, like, it seems like intractable when both villain and hero are still operating with the same mandate. So how do we turn some of those scalable solutions that you highlight in the book to, I guess, social or political action, because it seems like that's a major place where the change really needs to occur. Yeah, I think it's helpful, firstly, to have a perspective on change. How does change really happen in complex systems like we have societies and global systems? And it's messy. And we should expect it to be messy. We should expect it to be full of setbacks, full of U-turns and diversions. So what becomes important is then what's the direction of travel? Where's the momentum? And, you know, in the case that, that you gave, 
Biden with the Inflation Reduction Act has really upped the game. I mean, you, we have Europe now believing that's, that they're falling behind and having to come up with new policy beyond their Green Deal, which, which was incredibly progressive, because there's a kind of race to the top now in, in policy. And that's been as a result of the, the, the policy that's come out of the Biden administration. Then you see the inconsistencies and the hypocrisy. And you should expect that because it's a complex system. There are all sorts of pressures. There's all sorts of lobbying. And there will be one step forward, you know, two steps forward, one step back. So I think if if we pay less attention to to those sort of diversions and more attention to where's the momentum, then we get less sort of discouraged by that. I mean, we have, you can pick examples all around the world. Here in the UK, you know, there's a coal mine that's been granted a license for the first time in, I don't know, 50 years. And, you know, that seems like a ridiculous thing to do in a country also that's been very progressive on climate change. But in the end, it won't really matter because if you look at the the momentum, it's very strongly towards cleaning up the grid, decarbonizing, and that's happening extremely fast. In fact, I just was reading this morning about a report suggesting that 2023 will probably be the first year when uh, electricity production will be the cleanest ever. In fact, emissions from electricity production will go down and that's just because solar and wind, and to a lesser extent, uh, nuclear and hydro, are being taken up at such an incredible rate that in the end, it just becomes uneconomic for those other sources of, of energy to survive. So it's not that the change will happen overnight. It's not that we, we won't uh, face resistance. Here, I actually draw on my experience in living through the South African transition. You know, we had a generation of fighting to get rid of apartheid. And it took that amount of effort, and there were movements all around the world and within South Africa. But when the change happened, it happened extremely quickly. And so we have to pay attention to, you know, whether we're reaching those tipping points, but expect it to be a fight every step of the way. You know, we, we lose ground sometimes, as you've seen with, uh, for example, you know, abortion rights in, in the US and other issues. We have to constantly fight for these. They're, they're not a guarantee. And I, I think that's what's so interesting is that, and, and I want to get to uh, apartheid in a second, so I'm glad you, you referenced it because I thought the way in which you wove your experience into this story is is a very relevant one. And I've had the good fortune of of visiting South Africa just once, unfortunately, just once, because um, I had an amazing time there. I went in 1998, so it was um, quite a long time ago. And I have a, a really good friend from college, a fraternity brother of mine, who has pretty much lived in South Africa since the late 90s, because he was already living there when I visited. So he's probably been in South Africa longer than, <laughs> than our time um, when we were in university together. And for me, it was a very emotional journey with with a lot of different experiences. So I'm gonna I'm gonna put a a quick pin in apartheid for a second and come back to it. But I, I do want to talk about this 
this notion of being in a fight, right? As someone who is fairly anti-military and fairly pacifist, I, I try to, in my work, stay away from like military examples, right? Like when it's not storming a beach, we're not taking a hill, you know, like I try to remove the language of of violence in my work. But we are in a often violent fight, right? I think year over year, we see climate activists murdered globally. You know, that number continues to go up. Recently, in, in a project in Atlanta called Cop City, uh, a young activist was was murdered there. You know, we've seen violence at Standing Rock and, and so on and so forth. So often when I'm in what I call corporate sustainability circles, those stories are never really talked about. It's often about process and products and those things, and very rarely about people. So I'm curious as to your thoughts on understanding we're in a fight, language notwithstanding, but also putting those frames in the spaces where the lever really, really needs to be pushed, right? Because this is not all a supply chain issue, right? <laughs> this is there are more grounded issues that center people is, is my point. So I, I'm curious your, your thoughts on that, and then we'll get to apartheid. <laughs> yeah, I think it's true that the corporate space likes to keep things fairly, I don't know, neutralized. And, you know, you're not meant to display emotions and you're meant to be rational and you're meant to believe that we can manage our way out of this. And that's a fallacy, actually. One of the reasons why we're in the state we're in is because we've adopted a management approach to environmental issues, to take that example, also to social issues. You know, the ISO type standards, uh, like we had ISO 9000 for quality, and we said, okay, let's do that for environment. Let's do that for social responsibility. Let's do that for health and safety. Now, what that does is it institutionalizes it and it makes it manageable, you, what you get is continuous improvement, which is a good thing. But again, nothing like the scale and urgency that we need. And so that's really when you need a, a more dramatic response is when the challenge you're facing is dramatic and just incrementally improve, improving won't do it. And that's why we need to start to bring in some of that energy of a fight because I, I also, <laughs> I don't like the language. In fact, I've written a poem called, If This Is War. And, uh, you know, it starts out by saying, you know, I don't like the language of war. So if this is war, tell me, why is it war? And it's, it's a dialogue between hypothetically myself and a younger generation. And the point is that it requires a dramatic response. And so it doesn't mean that everybody's an enemy. You know, I think this was something I also learned uh, through my work with companies, but also through the South African experience. What you want to make the enemy is the issue that's not working. So apartheid was the enemy. It wasn't necessarily the people who were caught in that system or even propagating that system. Of course, you wanted to get them out of power and, and, and get the change. But you have to be very clear always what what is the enemy? And the enemy is the, the state or the condition you're trying to change. So I think it's important, but you know, the other part of it is you can't actually scare people into change. That's something else I've learned. So 
if you get too dramatic, too melodramatic, in fact, and it's all about crisis and things falling apart and, and you know, doomsday scenarios, scientifically, that may even be accurate, but it just doesn't work from a, from a communications perspective. And that's why I've also flipped the narrative and started talking about thriving. You have to give something positive for people to believe in and to get behind because that positive energy focuses on solutions and scaling the solutions, which in some ways make the problems redundant, you know, the, the thing that you're fighting against. It's a little bit like just to try and make it specific. So at COP26 in Glasgow, the, the meeting on climate, there was a big reaction when India said it's going to phase out, it's going to get to net zero by 2070. Everybody said, oh, way too late. That's, you know, like disastrous. Now, that ignores two things. Firstly, that they set a target to get to 50% renewables by 2030. I mean, incredible if they, if they get there. That's hugely transformative. But secondly, there's no ways that they will wait, that it will end up being 2070 because the market will turn in favor of clean tech and renewables. It just will not make economic sense to carry on with fossil fuels certainly beyond 2050, probably beyond 2040. So, you know, I think you just have to get that perspective sometimes of seeing, uh, focusing on the positive and accelerating that. Um, but in a, with, with the energy of a fight, expecting there to be some resistance. I love how you're framing this. And I wanted to talk about poetry and, and how you've also woven that into the book. And I, I know I promised the apartheid thing, but you, you said a couple of things that I, that I do want to sort of trace or, or go a little deeper into, which is this idea of like the scaring of people, right? Like scaring people seldom creates change. Like I've heard this before, right? Um, so I believe it, I guess. Um, but it seems like we can scare people into doing the same thing, right? Like it, it seems like scaring people into the status quo is very effective <laughs> in, in the sense that you know, and again, I don't, I don't have evidence of this, but it, it seems to me that I have like anecdotal evidence, right? So I'll share this kind of reflection. I, I remember maybe it was, my timing is fuzzy because I don't remember anything with COVID, but it could be, this could have been before COVID or maybe it was after COVID, but it was in the, let's call it the last three to four years. I remember there was record flooding in Germany, right? And I know, I know it was in Germany for sure. And literally there was this video of like torrential floodwaters just coming into like the quintessential German town. Like this was not Berlin. <laughs> this was like somewhere in the middle of nowhere, Germany, right? Everything looked like a, a gingerbread house <laughs> and it was washed away. And then they were talking to this woman, interviewing her, it's probably like on BBC or something. And she was like, oh my God, this is terrible in German. So they translated. And then <laughs> she was like, no, this is something that happens somewhere else, right? Like I only pictured this happening in wherever, right? Like the assertion being that if she had turned on her news and seen this floodwaters in Pakistan or Bangladesh or in Tanzania, someplace where there's dark people, she'd kind of be like, eh, okay, I would expect that, right? But in Germany, this was now beyond the pale, no pun intended. And it was like, fuck, what the fuck, right? So- I referenced that to the like the scaring and the making sense thing. 
because it, it seems to me that there's usually a conflict in that, right? Where scary things can happen to other folks. And that, in a way, makes sense, right? But when it starts to happen to you, it starts to make a little less sense. But yet, there's not enough to kind of move the dial, right? And it's it's sort of attached to this notion of there's a book, I'm going to paraphrase the title because I don't quite remember it, even though it's behind me on the bookshelf, Dying by Whiteness, right? Where folks will so cling to their place in the world that they're willing to drown rather than change things for everybody. Like that doesn't make sense. But when I look out onto the world, I see a lot of that, right? Where they're like, eh, we could have universal healthcare, but those dark people might have that too. So fuck that. Right. And, 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 you know, we see not just in America, but in Scandinavian countries, right? The so-called utopias. They're the ones that are like, oh, we have every all the universal benefits, but eh, too many people with weird names and dark complexions. So we need to start thinking about the welfare state, <laughs> right? You would see this, those things don't make sense, right? So I'm trying to jump into the emotion of this as a poet, right? Like we're not always talking about what makes sense. No, we are emotional beings and... Uh, we we are fundamentally tribal in our thinking. And what happens when there's uncertainty, and of course a crisis is the worst of that, is people go back to what they think they know and they go back to their tribe. Uh, and in fact, they put up walls and they, you know, they, they get defensive. And so that's a lot of what's been happening over the last few years. You know, uncertainty has gone up. People's, uh, of course, generally in the world, but also economic uncertainty. And so people have gone back to their tribe, whatever their tribe might be. And often that is, you know, taking us back a, a decade or two because what we've been trying to do is, of course, open the world up and, and increase the diversity and, you know, reaching out across traditional divides. So, you know, I think that is a struggle we, we face because the world is not going to get calmer. I think there will be more uncertainty, more crises. So we have to learn to really navigate through those in a way that doesn't take us back to that fairly primitive, primal behavior. It is shocking sometimes. I, I often show a chart that, that asked people from countries around, around the world, do you want more gender diversity and do you want more ethnic diversity? So gender equality, ethnic diversity. Now you would expect, I would expect in this day and age, that should be 100% in every country, surely, right, by now. And it isn't. So there are many countries where very low proportions of the population want gender equality. And then in some of those countries that you referenced, uh, Scandinavian and, and others, where, you know, yes, gender equality, they actually don't want more ethnic diversity. Now, I use this actually in my presentations to illustrate one of the principles of thriving, the key scientific keys, which is all about creativity. In order for a system to flourish, it needs diversity. And in fact, it's diversity that's going to get us through a lot of these challenges that we face and the crises, because if you've got groupthink all the time, you know, the chances are you're going to fail. You're not going to be able to adapt quickly in the way that, that we need to. So there are very good scientific reasons to 
you know, reach out across borders to increase our diversity and so on. But there are this sort of a counter tendency in humans just to stick to who they know and what they know and replicate themselves. So again, it's one of those things we have to work hard on uh, to get people to uh, to grow essentially as as human beings grow emotionally, uh, as well as providing to as much as we can the security, the emotional security that they feel they need. I do think I'm not an expert on on U.S. politics, but I I think one of the reasons that Trump got in in the first place was there was a generation that felt left behind in middle America whose lives hadn't seemed to have got any better for a generation. And that's statistically true if you look at their incomes. Um, so we need to bring people along on this journey. Uh, and and that's, that's challenging, but that's, it needs to be for everyone. Yeah. And it's, and it's that everyone that's, that I find so important, right? Because it, it gives us, I think, opportunities to start to think about the, the the benefits of everyone succeeding together, right? And Trump was a complete disaster, right? Um, but I knew he was going to win, <laughs> you know, not just because Hillary Clinton was a terrible candidate, which she was, lovely person, but terrible candidate. There was a, a report in the New York Times. I might have referenced this on the show. So listeners that my regular listeners, you might have heard this example before. There was a New York Times, random New York Times report, had nothing to do with politics about white males in the U.S. were now the highest, had the highest rate of suicide ever, over 40, right? And this was like, we're still in primary time. He's not even the leading guy yet, but among the guys. And I was like, okay, the writing's on the wall here, right? Like the loudest most despicable human is going to win. Because if this group, right, like, you know, I'm a black dude in Brooklyn, right? I'm not saying every white dude's doing okay, but a lot of them motherfuckers are doing okay, <laughs> right? Just generally speaking. And I'm like, if this is a group that's deciding to end it all, we got problems, right? Because I'm like, what's your problem? <laughs> right? Like, what's the issue that's making you do this? But I think in a kind of like, you know, roundabout way, this speaks to this notion that we generally have that progress has to look a certain way and progress and growth are inevitable. So the minute that there's a hiccup in that story for you, now it's crisis mode, regardless of the fact that that's just life for everybody else, right? So it kind of brings me back to that earlier part of the conversation where we're talking about like finite resources, right? If your brain is wired to think that the success story is a birthright and it's infinite, it's hard for you to get on board with the rest of us who don't see it that way. Because I've never seen it that way. Very happy guy, but I know that this shit is, you know, this could end at any moment. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, we have bought into this growth and consumerist culture. Uh, we, we've created it and we've uh, amplified it. And of course, uh, companies and advertising continue to drive it and persuade us that this is what we need to be happy. But there is so much evidence that more stuff doesn't make us happy, more money doesn't make us happy beyond a very low threshold, something like $15,000 a year. 
Uh, after that, in fact, more economic growth or income growth has more negative effects, what the economists call, ex- call externalities. And so, you know, we start to, yeah, to, to get less satisfied with our lives, but we're bought into the myth. And so we continue to, you know, to, to drive it and to hold on to it. And I think, you know, it links to a, a much deeper issue, which is about inequality. And again, there's lots of evidence to suggest that inequality makes everybody less happy, including those who are the richest, because they're also on a treadmill where they can never have enough. For them, it's all about whether they are better than the, the neighbor. And yeah, there's there's more and more evidence that suggests if we don't start to reduce inequality to make our societies more equal, many of the other things we're trying to achieve, tackling climate change, other environmental issues, uh, other social issues, they don't get better because, you know, eventually the social inequality comes back and collapses the society. And so I often show also a, a statistic about inequality within companies because we immediately think, oh, this is about between rich countries and poor countries. Well, yes, it is. Or maybe it's about inequality within countries. Yes, it's about that too. But how do you expect things to get more equal when CEO to average worker pay has gone from, you know, uh, 20 or 30 to 1 in 1965 to more than 300 to 1 today? If you're in Amazon, it's more than 6,000 to 1. So, you know, we have to tackle that side of it. And that the communication challenge is convincing those that have the power, have the money, have the privilege that a more equal society is better for them as well. And uh, we've got a long way to go on that, but the evidence is is pretty compelling that that's true. Yeah. When you were sharing that, I thought of noted street economist and philosopher Biggie Smalls put it perfectly, right? More money, more problems. <laughs> you know, he 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 nailed it very succinctly. Um, but I think this is a good good chance to finally, as I promised at the very beginning, to talk about apartheid, right? Because you you had a, a portion in the book where you where you talk about this and you highlighted three things. And so I, I wrote at least three things, but that I highlighted here for my notes, you know, that apartheid is exclusive, is exploitative, and is extractive. And those are like key components of how that system operates. And I, I read that and I kind of paused and I thought to myself, I was like, kind of sounds like capitalism. <laughs> right? <laughs> like, so I wanna I wanna hear more about, you know, A, I threw that out there, right? Like it seems like these two systems kind of got a lot in common. And I wanna hear your your personal reflections, because like I said, I, I thought they were incredibly relevant to the thesis of thriving. Yeah, well, exactly. I I do make the suggestion that we now live in a gl- global apartheid system because they have those three fundamental characteristics, which are exactly the same. Now, in some cases, it's, it's not legally enforced. Still in others, it, it is. But you know, we we do exploit labor uh, through through capitalism. We we do uh, promote inequality and exclusivity, and we certainly you know are overusing resources. So 
the question is, is that fundamental to capitalism? And I don't think it is. It's fundamental to the way that we've designed the economic system right now, that's for sure. Um, the, the type of economy we have has those features. But it's not inevitable. To, to give just one example, right? We're probably as unequal today economically, let's take the United States, as the US was just when the Great Depression hit in the 1930s. So very unequal, like, uh, you know, the richest 10% probably earning more than more than 60% of the income or wealth. And so the question is, has it always been like that? Because this is capitalism after all. Well, no, it hasn't. Because after a Great Depression and two world wars, the government started putting policies in place to reduce inequality and to, you know, to distribute income more fairly. And we have the the various uh, policy tools to do that. And inequality went way down in the United States. It became a much more equal society. And then what happened from about the 1970s, especially into the 80s with Reagan, is that they managed to convince us of a new sort of economic myth, which was neoliberal economics, which is basically, we need to get rid of government, make it as small as possible, let the market do its thing, you know, free market, don't interfere, deregulate everything, privatize everything. And hey, presto, inequalities started shooting up again. And so what we have to look at then is what kind of capitalism do we want and do we need and, and how do we design it in that way? And there are plenty of ways that we can design policies, if you like, to tame that darker side of capitalism and to bring out the the positive side and the positive side we know it brings innovation it brings wealth creation and and so on there's a lot of talk not only about progressive taxation but things like taxation on pollution and resources carbon tax which by the way has to come we we really don't solve climate change without getting a carbon tax but also things like a citizens fund this has uh, been in place in some countries already and it's very effective so you you use the taxes of resources and of, of uh, extreme wealth to go into a fund that you then distribute equally to everyone in society. Um, so we know how to do this, actually. It's just that it's politically hard and the vested interests, again, tend to lobby against it. So it's it comes back to bold leadership, I think. And uh, sometimes we lack that, especially in the political space. I guess I'm I'm always, I don't want to say skeptical because, you know, I don't like to use that word, but um, I don't know. I I've, I resist, like when I'm in my regular life and kind of talking to folks, it's like I don't actually love to embark on the capitalism versus socialism and all that, that kind of conversation. Because I'm like, well, you know, I just feel like, is there a way to kind of leap past that in a way, right? Like if we're if we're trying to think radically, and I think the book invites radical thinking, then why are we still trapped in this paradigm of, you know, debating like Karl Marx versus, you know, Adam Smith and Milton Friedman and all these people, right? Like they're long dead, right? And some longer dead than others. But, you know, we, we keep tinkering around the edges of this. And it frustrates me because 
I've read so much of this, right? Like we're going to have philanthrocapitalism, we're going to have regenerative capitalism, we're going to have all these different things that are going to make it better. And I'm just like, I don't really see no evidence of that, right? Like for all the talk that is going to, that we could just tame its darker instincts. I think the darker instincts are just the way it works, right? So rather than do that, like, let's just start to think about something else. Let's just call it something else, right? Because if, if we keep calling it, if we keep doing this, we're going to keep having that debate, right? Where folks are going to throw all the like, well, look at all the state-run econo- economic systems. Those have never worked. And then someone's going to do what I'm doing, right? And talk about, oh, you know, this and that, industrial revolution and slavery. And I'm like, uh, you know, like, is there, <laughs> given the circumstances, right, we know for sure that this is not working. Like, I think we can agree on that, right? Like, not me and you, but I'm talking about the general sense of people, right? Yeah. And I don't know if you can reform this, right? Well, I, I think, firstly, it is the system that we've got. It is kind of the only game in town. And I'm not one who thinks it must all crash and burn and then we'll make something, you know, shiny and new uh, out of the ashes, because I think we'll probably recreate something pretty similar to what we've got. So I think reform is the only option we have, and we have examples of where it's been possible. I mean, you mentioned the Scandinavian countries, uh, Europe, there are good examples where you can have a balanced economic system that is um, much fairer than uh, the extremes we see in, let's say, less regulated capitalist systems, and also better on, on environmental impacts. So, you know, I think we just have to look at all of the all of the the tools that we have and some of it is not tinkering, some of it is pretty fundamental the the changes that we need to make. I think work like donut economics by Kate Raworth starts to get to the you know, to the underlying assumptions of what needs to change in the system and and that's uh gaining popularity and uh yeah, so I think as tempting as it is to want to find something completely different, I do think there is plenty of scope for for working with our current system and improving it. You know, policies, laws do work. What we what won't work is a, a system of deregulated capitalism or stakeholder capitalism. I mean, uh, sorry, shareholder capitalism. I mean, that clearly hasn't worked for you know for fairness or for sustainability. So that's the main thing that has to change. And again, it requires a, a movement and it requires us putting pressure both on governments and and on companies because they won't necessarily rush to this themselves because they have all the vested interests in the status quo. But I do think fairer and more sustainable economic systems that incorporate capitalism are definitely possible. I mean, I, I definitely agree that, you know, yeah, make make shit better when we can, right? Like I'm definitely in favor of passing the laws where we can and getting the regulations on the books. And, you know, we've seen improvement, right? We no longer have, at least in the United States, for the most part, eight-year-olds working in like, you know, meatpacking plants, right? <laughs> at least until there's some 2020 expose that happens next week that I'm not aware of. But as far as I know, in this moment sitting here, that's not really the case. But I always come back to like Ursula K. Le Guin, right? Like this is another person that I reference all the time. And she's like, you know, we once believed in the divine rule of kings, right? Like that was a certainty, 
right? The king was literally divine. And our entire system is set up in that belief model, right? And now we have this new belief model that permeates everything, right? It's the de facto religion, right? And what's interesting is that it's not the rapacious titans that they're propagating this, but I feel it's propagated most by like the rank and file people because everyone thinks they're going to hit the lottery ticket and become on top, right? It's different in different systems, right? But part of the American dream is, right, hey, I can come from anywhere, work really hard, and then boom, money, right? Success. It can only happen here. It's an incredible brand. But I feel like it fails the muster. And I don't know, when I hear like the story, oh, the depression, then we had did better. I'm like, yeah, but again, not people that look like me, like they were left out of that shit, right? So I think if you if you break that down, when people were building highways and we had the interstate highway here and all this stuff that kind of made the baby boom generation, black people couldn't really ride on them highways, right? Like we just couldn't. Yeah. So that's the skepticism that I come with, right? Because I feel like it's still, success is still looking at a certain type of success, but not incorporating the totality of it. Yeah. Right. That's certainly true. I mean, we, we need to have different measures of success, different beliefs about what success is. I think we need to replace the idea of growth with development. I mean, nothing in nature grows forever. It quantitatively, it, it starts out, it grows very fast and then it stabilizes. And after that, you have qualitative growth, which we can also call development. And so a lot needs to happen both at a political, economic, and a sort of psychological level to to get us to embrace the idea that this is all about ensuring continuous development, not continuous growth and acquisition. And that that actually is linked to happiness, ultimately. If you feel that you're developing as a person, as a society, that things are getting better qualitatively, then you know you you get the happiness and i've heard a lot of talk now about maybe starting to frame this as countries that embrace a well-being economy that our ultimate goal is well-being for everyone and if we make that the goal okay i call it thriving it doesn't really matter which which label you use if you change the goal and the goal isn't economic growth then you know you can you can change how to get there and, and then you change the policy and so on. But one of the things I th you probably alluded to is this doesn't work without social movements. I think that's the counterbalance that keeps both government and business in check. Without that, those two will probably just be in bed together anyway, you know, enriching each other. So you, you have to have those activist movements, and it takes lots of different forms today, both online and still in person on the streets. Again, it's back to the fight. You know, there is a movement that they have to feel that puts pressure on them as, as those that have a certain kind of power. And that can also come through the labor movement. I think we, we need to rebalance those scales because... You know, we've had decades of trying to get rid of labor unions and, and labor rights have suffered as a result. But it's all the environmental and the climate activists as well, and those that are looking for equal rights on various fronts. So we have to support and amplify those movements. And they really are effective. I mean, 
it is the only reason really why apartheid fell in the end was because of a broad global and local social movement that that was um yeah very very active and and very determined and whatever the new kind of capitalism is i think stakeholder capitalism is if we're going to use a label is probably a good label because it really is about going from the idea that this benefits one group to the idea that this has to benefit multiple parties and multiple groups in in society and so you know i'm i'm very much for that and they're often the things that bring those systems to tipping points because they they sort of this this wave of pressure that builds and builds like on a dam and then suddenly the dam breaks and it changes very quickly to use one simple example i think this has been happening on plastic for the last 10 years right plastic was always a problem uh, even growing up right you but we got convinced by those that were creating the problem that the solution is just to have a little awareness campaign about litter so actually it was our fault as consumers that that there was a plastic problem because we were naughty and we didn't throw things in in the bin but of course we know that it's a it's a much much bigger problem and what you saw within the space of a very few years was this movement building and it started with documentaries like plastic soup and others we had entrepreneurs like Boyan Slatu created the ocean cleanup and then suddenly policies started to to take note and it came out of unexpected places i mean rwanda i think was one of the first countries to ban plastic bags and then suddenly the eu had a plastic strategy uh, and then the the un you know added plastic to the basel convention on hazardous waste and then you know so it's just and now we've got we're negotiating an international treaty on plastic and that's as a result of a movement and movements build because of small successes amplifying each other joining together and then both policymakers and business really do feel that pressure and start to then change innovate and, and escalate the solutions we definitely need need that pressure i i remember when i first learned of apartheid as a thing that was happening was through seeing at the time Stevie Wonder and Amy Carter who was Jimmy Carter's daughter they were arrested outside the White House I believe it was the White House for demonstrating against apartheid and I was like you know as a kid and I was like you know I knew who Amy Carter was cuz she was a kid when I was a kid and everybody knows who Stevie Wonder is <laughs> so it was like unlikely bedfellow sort of protesting and you know like I said I was a uh, young kid and I was like wow you know what is this thing called apartheid right and and then subsequently dominated you know my teen political life until um Nelson Mandela was was freed and I had a chance to go to the parade when he came to New York and skip school and all that stuff to make sure I saw that cuz it was one of the biggest yeah. things in in my life up to that time right so i'm i'm definitely a proponent of activism being in the street i i think it's the only, to your point is the only thing that's ever changed anything is um being out in the street coupled with a lot of the other things that you highlighted so there is there is a lot of active hope yeah, exactly and that's how we should frame it but there's an interesting thing that happens when we get social movements what social movements are really doing are changing the norms of society and what we've learned about both governments and business 
is that they really just want to reflect the norms of society. They're not actually very courageous. They want to fit in. And so as soon as they detect that the norms of society are changing or have changed, they actually adapt to fit in to those norms. I sometimes joke, I mean, it's not strictly true, but I sometimes joke that after democracy came in South Africa in 1994, you couldn't find anyone who ever supported apartheid, all right? Because suddenly, <laughs> suddenly we were in this new situation and, and everybody was like, oh, so this is what normal is and, and this is much better. And, and surely I couldn't have believed these other things before. So, you know, we are social animals uh, and, and we like to fit in. And that's one of our great strengths, I think, is just making some of these things that we're fighting for the new normal. I mean, in future, you know, using dirty fuels, I mean, that'll be just like barbaric. It'll be crazy. And why would you drive a car that pollutes when you can have an electric car? And why would you, you know, throw stuff away when everything all waste is a resource? And, you know, why would you treat people who are different to you, you know, differently uh, when they just bring strength to the organization or the system. So just making things normal that uh, are at the moment seen as, as aspirational, I think is part of the journey. There's an interesting formula I sometimes share because I think it's insightful on how change happens. It's called Beckard's formula. And it's that uh, resistance to change must be less than the combination of three factors. The first factor is a vision of what's possible. The second factor is first concrete steps. You have to show that it's possible to change. And the third is dissatisfaction with the status quo. And I even use this in my lecturing and teaching, and I often ask people, so which of these factors is missing? If things aren't changing fast enough, it's because one of these is too weak. And sometimes I think it's in, in, in our movement, around sustainability and social justice and so on, I, I sometimes think it's dissatisfaction with the status quo that is is the missing element because a lot of people are too comfortable with how things are right now. They're benefiting from the current system and they wouldn't want to give something up. Uh, and that again comes to the psychology of change. Like if we're gonna sell this always as giving something up and making sacrifices and, and so on, you're probably not gonna get people on board. So rather get them to buy into that that vision, very compelling, show them that it's possible with lots of innovation happening, so that this is a positive agenda. But then you have to remind them, you have to get them a bit uncomfortable by, by sharing the facts of how, how bad the situation actually is in terms of breakdown, breakdowns. Yeah. Or else you're going to lay in the boiling water until it's too late. <laughs> we we got to avoid that, that boiling water. So I, I want to get to the final two segments of the show. The first is off the dome where I just ask a couple of rapid fire questions and I only have two of them. One of the things you reflect on in the book is your your love of um, forest and how it's it's one of your places that you feel is sort of like where you're comfortable and you've had the opportunity to be in a, a number of them. So of all the forests you've, you've visited thus far, which is the one where you would want to spend most of your time? I guess that's probably, until now, it's probably the Amazon rainforest. And that's just because it's incredible, but uh, also there was a social experience with the, uh, with the indigenous people there that uh, made it extra special, getting an insight into how they view the world. 
and how they see nature as 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 living as as their mother yeah so it was very profound experience to be there and I'd love to be there more and and the second off the dome question is 78 countries in what's going to be country in 79 where haven't you been <laughs> there, there there are plenty of places I haven't I'm not even halfway <laughs> on seeing the world so I don't know exactly where where the next will be but I am planning a world tour a world thriving tour kicking off in October and really just uh, going where where I'm invited together with my partner and and running thriving workshops and and talks and so on and so we're we're sort of just open to to going places um, where they're keen to to explore this together and to share our experiences. I guess Africa is is my first love, and there are still plenty of parts in, of Africa that I haven't been. And um, you know, probably a dream would be to go to the Democratic Republic of Congo because it's it's like one of the second forest lungs of the world. There are three lungs: Amazon, Indonesia, and the DRC. Unfortunately, it's you know in a state of conflict, not so safe. But um, no, there are plenty of parts of Africa I would still still love to visit. So we'll see if, if we end up there. But likewise, I mean, Asia, Latin America, there are fascinating places that I'd love to go. Yeah, it always seems that for those who get an opportunity to travel or, or have a desire to travel, no matter how many places they've been, there's always, they, they always lament that they haven't seen everything. It's a common, I, I've, I've not hit 78 countries, but I've done a decent amount of travel and I still feel like I've not seen shit. So I understand the sentiment. And if you're going to be doing a thriving tour, we got to make sure we get you out to Brooklyn, man. We got to get you out. Got to get you here. Yeah. Let's talk about that. I'd love to. We basically, wherever we find a host, we we will go and share what we know. So uh, yeah, we talk about that. Absolutely. So I'm going to get to the final segment of the show, which is the drop. And the drop is just an opportunity to share anything or things. It can be more than one thing with our listeners. And my drop is a documentary called The Corporation, which is, I feel like it was in the 2000s. Like I'll obviously have the right link to it, but it was just, it was a really interesting doc- documentary that highlighted if we looked at the corporation as a person, basically the corporation would be a sociopath. And it, and it traces the, the characteristics of sociopathy and linked them to the way a corporation operates. And it, I, I feel like it's a always timely reminder to kind of go back and dive into this stuff and check them out. It's a, it's a documentary that I remember, but I haven't seen in a long time. So I'm, I'm highlighting it as my drop for this episode. So you are up. Anything you want to share? Well, just before I add my drop, I know the, the the book and the documentary well. And in fact, I interviewed the the author, Joel Bacon, as part of another book I did, uh, the Top 50 Sustainability Books. And we featured that as as one of the books. So I went and visited him in uh, Vancouver and, and had a wonderful conversation with him. And it, it remains quite a profound insight, right, that uh, corporations and, and probably a lot of CEOs are are psychopathic in how they operate. So, and and his view, by the way, was that this is not inevitable, but we need the policy system, the legal system. He's a lawyer by training to regulate properly in order to uh, prevent that sociopathic behavior. Yeah, it's a it's a good one. It's a good one. I'm I'm, I'm glad you had that experience. So, we should have him on the show. <laughs> yeah, he's great. 
What would mine be? So many things to choose from. Maybe I'm going to say uh, read Genesis. It's a it's a book by by George Monbiot. Uh, he's a a journalist uh, writes for the Guardian and has written many very impactful books. Uh, this is his latest, and I just think he he analyzes and researches extremely well. But but fundamentally, it's about ch- challenging our food system, uh, which is very very broken right now, as well as giving solutions for that. And you know, some of that is our moves towards regenerative agriculture techniques, but. It's also about alternative protein precision fermentation being one of the very uh, important solutions and moving to perennial crops. And uh, yeah, just a, a really amazing book that that challenges us uh, very fundamentally and links, if I can sneak a half a, a drop in, to a recent report called The Breakthrough Effect, which came out was University of Exeter, that looks at super tipping points in, hmm. in society right now, what are the things that could fundamentally change the whole world because they're reinforcing one another? Uh, the breakthrough effect. Uh, one of them is related to alternative uh, uh, protein and reforming the uh, the food system. The other two are around green hydrogen and ammonia, and around uh, uh, renewables and electric vehicles. So that's also a great report. Oh, that's awesome! So two drops. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Dr. Visser, this was a, a, a great conversation. I already cited before we started recording. I, I thank you for all your flexibility in getting this one in. The book is a vital one. I'm I'm glad it's it's here and pushing us to think differently, to think of different possibilities, to use poetry in our work, whether literally or figuratively figuratively, is a pleasure having you on the deep dive. Thanks so much for being on the show with me. So why don't I just do something uh, which which I spring sometimes because you've mentioned poetry a few times. Uh, I'll end with a poem. You can uh, you can use it if you like. No, please do. I will use it. But there's one, as you know, there's poetry scattered through the book Thriving, but this one isn't in there, and it's uh, completely on topic because it's called A Place to Thrive. So if you're happy for me to do that, I'll I'll share that to end. Go for it. So this is a poem called A Place to Thrive. Is the world a better place because we lived and loved and learned? What will our children have to face because of what we built and burned? Are people better than before because we gave them dignity? What happened to the sick and poor while we were living strong and free? Is the world a fairer place because we fought for equal rights? Who lost for us to win our race? Or did we open up new heights? Is nature thriving, great and small, because we walked upon the earth? Did oceans rise and species fall with every breath we took since birth? Is the world a dying place because our enterprises grew? Did we destroy our living space? Or did we seed the world anew? Each day we get to use our voice to raise the tide or let it ebb. Each day we face a simple choice to nurture life or fray its web. Let's let the world be better still for every moment we're alive because we choose to use our will to make our earth a place to thrive. Thank you so much for sharing that. I couldn't think of a better note to end on. Thank you for being on the show. That was wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. Great pleasure to be with you. 
You can listen to The Deep Dive via Apple Podcasts and our website, thedeepdivepod.com. Download, subscribe, listen, and share. If you like what you're hearing and enjoy what me and the team are putting together, then leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. You can follow me on Twitter via at FarFlungPhil. To all my listeners, wherever you are in the world, I thank you. See you on the other side.